We are going to be in multiple passages of Scripture today, so I'm not going to necessarily start off with a passage of Scripture, but I am going to start off um, with asking a question. Um, how many of you took high school chemistry? Okay, high school chemistry, okay. How many of you remember doing work with acids and bases? Acids and bases, so there was this test that you could perform on a substance to determine whether or not it was an acid or a base. Do you remember the name of that test? It's called a litmus test, right? Litmus test. And if it was an acid, it would be what? Blue? No, base is blue. Acid is pink. If it were an acid, it would be pink. And if it were a base, it would be blue. Okay? Um, so how did you know something was an acid? How did you know something was base? Because it was a litmus test. And I think in our common vernacular, we use that phrase litmus test as it relates to other things in life. You know, the litmus test or whatever. What is the litmus test for Christianity? Like as far as living out one's faith. Like, is there such a thing? What's the litmus test of someone being a Christian? Like, how would you know? And, and the Bible actually speaks to what exactly that litmus test. I know what it is. It's how you vote. Right? No? No? I know what it is. I know what it is. It's the denomination of your church. No? No, it's not that. Are those things important? Sure they are. And we could go through lots of different things. What's the litmus test of a person actually living out their Christianity? How do you know a person's a Christian? The Bible speaks of certain things that are absolutely essential to being a Christian. In fact, there's one thing in particular that the Bible says, if you don't have this, you don't know God. And you could do a lot of things and not have this and they're worthless. And the Bible also says that above all things, you should put this on. And if you're going to fulfill all the law, you can fulfill it in doing this. You know what that is? It is love. Okay? It is love. Now, what's the litmus test for a Christian? The Bible says, by this shall all men know, you're my disciples, if you have love. Now, I'm going to talk today about love. And I'm going to talk today about what the Bible says about love in a way that, God willing, anyone who holds the Bible as their authority should be able to say, yes, I can see that in Scripture, and yes, we agree. Okay? Anyone who should, who, anyone who, who has Scripture as their authority, they can open the Bible, say, I believe this, this is God's Word. They should be able to look at at least the essential principles that I'm going to lay out here and say, yep, I'd agree with that. that. That's what the Bible says about love. But we're also going to take those principles and we're going to see how they play out, especially as they play out in the lives of Christians as we speak to the issues of the day. Now, how we vote church denominations aren't the only issues of the day, to be sure. But as we look at these things, we as Christians should be able to see the applicability to love, the applicability of love, 
to those things as we live out our faith. And not just live out our faith, distinctly live out our faith. Okay? All right. Here we go. So, we are going to start. I'm going to use the screen here. If you want to write down things, that's fine. If it's big enough, that's good. Okay? Like I said, we're going to be in multiple passages. But I'm, going to hate, I'm basically going to give you four, basically, essential characteristics of love as they come from the Bible. And then we're going to look at principles and applications of those essential characteristics. Okay? All right. So number one, love comes from God and was perfectly applied, perfectly applied applied and expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's look starting off in 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to look at multiple passages here. I think I said that, but just saying it again. Fair warning. Okay. Love comes from God and was perfectly expressed in Christ Jesus. So we have 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. And let's look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, earlier, we have a very specific point of application that John makes of love in chapter 3. And he talks about Jesus being that perfect expression. Chapter 3, verse 16. 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Okay? So love comes from God. God is love. And it's perfectly expressed in Christ Jesus. But what I want us to do then is I want us to look to see how this principle plays out as we speak to the issues of the day. Okay? So what would this look like? Our love, especially our love for others, comes from a gratitude for being loved. And not our estimation of how worthy of love someone is. Okay, you see that? Our love, especially our love for others, comes from gratitude for being loved. And not from how worthy or perhaps how much we estimate them to be lovable. Okay? And we see that expressly in the example of Philemon and Onesimus. You know the story of Philemon? Let's look over at Philemon. Okay? Book of Philemon. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. It's really small. You can skip right over it if you're not careful. It's one page. Right, so Philemon, in verse 8, there's only one chapter. Paul writes to Philemon and says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet 
for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Okay, for love's sake. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. You know the story of Onesimus. This was one who was most likely a slave underneath Philemon, who stole or did something to wrong him, went away, met Paul. Paul led him to Christ. And so Onesimus left Philemon's home, perhaps a thief, at the very least a criminal and an unbeliever, and he returns back with two letters from Paul. One to the whole church, we call that Colossians, and one to Philemon in particular, and that's called Philemon. Okay? And so he's writing and he's saying, I want you for love's sake to receive Onesimus. And then in verse 19, I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. And this is how Paul and his exhortation to Philemon and Onesimus is a great illustration of what we're talking about in regards to this principle. In that our love for others comes from a gratitude for being loved and not our estimation of how worthy of love someone is. Look at verse 19. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Why should Paul, I'm sorry, why should Philemon love Onesimus? Because Onesimus is now a brother in Christ. Why should he receive him? Because he's a brother. And oh, by the way, Philemon, remember, you were once opposed to God, but now you're my brother. So that love and that grace that you received, you in turn share with another believer. Or you share with others. Not because they've earned it in your sight. Not because you have so much in common, but because you yourself have been loved with so great a love. That is really where this comes to play. And this is how we must love, especially as we speak to the issues of the day. That love comes from God and was perfectly expressed in Christ Jesus. There was nothing winsome about us that somehow allowed for God to look at us and say, you know what, they're a worthy candidate. And yet, as we speak to others, and as we relate to others, especially within the body of Christ, that must govern how we relate to one another. That's why we love one another. And that's why we aspire to love all souls. Because we have been loved with so great a love. So principle number, or essential quality number one, love comes from God. No Christian should argue with that. Love comes from God. Love was perfectly expressed in the person of Christ Jesus. No Christian will argue with that. Okay? All right, number two. Love is at the heart of being a follower of Christ. Love is at the heart of being a follower of Christ. All right, so let's turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12.
right in verse 28, Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and that there is no one else besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all of the understanding and all of the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is at the heart of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We already quoted John chapter 13, verse 35, right? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, if you have love for one another. A Christian is essentially one who loves. Okay, that's at the essence of Christianity. We said before, love comes from God and was perfectly expressed in Jesus Christ. Now, what we're saying, or what really what the Bible says, is that it is essential to being a Christian, similar to that litmus test, okay? That love is at the heart of who that person is, okay? So, in light of that, what principle can we take from that truth? Well, the principle is this. You go up. Our love should become more obvious the more people get to know us. Our love should become more obvious the more people get to know us. Okay, so if they were to crack you open, as it were, I know that's kind of gory, sorry, but maybe if they were to peel you back, let's use an onion instead of a cadaver you know, illustration. If they were to peel you back, the layers that are you, and they get to know you more and more, and then they get to that chewy nougat center that is you, what should they find? Someone who loves. Not someone who is bitter. Not someone who is fearful or angry or distant or proud. Christians as people get to know us more, they should know us for being really good lovers of people. Why? Because God changed us. Paul writes of a group of believers that their testimony for loving actually spread through the ancient world. It was the Thessalonians. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Okay. All right, now, I want to read verse 8 before I get to chapter 4. Because chapter 4 is really where it talks about them and their excelling in love. But verse 8 is really key, I think, 
of chapter 1, verse 8 is really key because it helps us understand just the context of, you know, the more people get to know you. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. People knew about this church. They knew about these Christians. Okay? They were seeing God do a work. Now, let's skip over to chapter 4. Verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Look how he uses all twice. But we urge you, brethren, excel still more. So they were doing it. And they were known for doing it. And more people got to know these Thessalonian believers. And as Paul is instructing them, as we read of that instruction, it wasn't as if Paul needed to instruct them to love. No. They just needed encouragement. Keep going. They were living out the essential characteristic of what it is to be a Christian. It's to love. Yes, doctrine is true. We're going to be talking about that. Doctrine is essential and it's important. But the expression of one's Christianity, love, is absolutely essential. And as people get to know you, hopefully they get to know that they are loved by you. Especially within the body of believers. Especially within the body of believers. Okay? So first thing. Love is from God and was perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. Second of all, love is at the heart of being a follower of Christ. Okay? Now, third principle here. Love can be superior to knowledge, or parenthetically, it can be superior to you being right without undermining knowledge. Okay? Let me say that again. Love can be superior to knowledge or superior to you being right without undermining knowledge. So what's that look like? Okay, well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, or perhaps your translation say puffs up, but love edifies, or perhaps your translation says builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So what Paul is doing here is he's comparing knowledge and love. And clearly, he's showing the virtue of love in the sense that it builds up. Whereas knowledge has the potential of puffing one up or making one arrogant. 
Now, is Paul saying that knowledge is bad? No. Look at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that and just stop right there. If he were saying that knowledge was somehow bad, why in the world would he say, no, concerning things to idols, here's what we know. He's not saying that knowledge is bad. He's not saying being right is bad. We ought to be right. We want to be right. But we cannot be right at the expense of the other person, especially within the body of Christ. And so with that, we have this principle that our love keeps us from tearing down others that we disagree with. Our love should keep us from tearing down those that we disagree with. And I use those words tearing down because it's the opposite of what love does in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Love builds up. It doesn't tear down. But they're wrong. Yeah, they might be. That doesn't make truth relative. But it does make that soul valuable to the extent that you do not tear them down to make your point. Whatever the issue of the day is. And we see this in Paul's own personal testimony. Okay? We're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to see it within the body of Christ. But then we're going to look at Romans chapter 13, and we're even going to see it outside the body of Christ. Okay? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 10 first. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 23, all things are lawful, and he's kind of quoting a slogan here, all things are lawful, but not all things profitable. All things lawful, but not all things edify. Look at verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. That's edifying, that's building up. That's love. All things are lawful. He's talking about what type of food was acceptable to eat within the body of believers and the varying sensitivities based on their spiritual history. He's saying, don't destroy another soul for food. Christ died for that soul. Don't do that. Don't tear them down. Love builds up. Yes, but this is true of this idol, and this is true of this idol, and this is true, and this is true, and this is true. I know it's true. Yes, that's true. But if you're using that knowledge as a club to make your point and to beat them down, then you are in the wrong, even though you are right. Now, how do we see this even outside the body of Christ? Let's look at Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, the very first part of this chapter, if you're familiar with this chapter, it speaks to the Christian's relationship with the governing authorities. Paul describes them in verse 4 as ministers of God for good. So in verse 6, 
we read, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, verse 8 starts a new paragraph, but it kind of piggybacks off the language of verses 1 through 7, especially with the very first word, oh, because we're talking taxes, right? Verse 6, verse 7, you know, pay your taxes, give honor to those leaders, but look at verse 8, owe nothing to anyone except to what? Love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The same line of reasoning of bringing honor to whom God has ordained as our leadership. Give honor to whom honor is due. And then, owe, but owe what? Owe love. I know what it's like to owe taxes from the standpoint of, I don't like, you know, I'm not eager to, to do I, I I don't think of, yay, I get to pay taxes. I think, Ugh, I have to owe taxes. It's an obligation. Paul's not saying you should feel, ugh, I have, to I have to love this person. What he's saying is, it's just as much of an obligation as it is a feeling. Like, that is what they are worthy of. To love one another. Owe nothing except to love one another. So again, the knowledge that we have especially as it relates to the issues of the day, if you find that the knowledge you are accumulating is more, it serves more as ammunition than it does as a means of building relationships, then I would ask you to really consider what the role of knowledge is in your life. Why the number of Substack subscriptions? Why the number of blogs to be read? Why the number of television shows to be watched? Is it simply ammo to show you're right? How does that expedite love? We are living in a pretty fractured country right now. And if there's anything that can show light and darkness, wouldn't it be love? I'm not talking about ambivalence and moral relevance. I'm not saying that. But man, if all we're doing is reloading, we are arrogant. And the Bible calls that sin which leads me to the fourth essential truth of love, which is love puts away pride. You may not have seen this coming as far as just the progression, but it's really important to look at the characteristics of love as they're spelled out by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, so let's, let's look there, 1 Corinthians 13. And in particular, I want us to look at verses 4 and 5. I know it goes 
really through verse 8. But I want us to look at these characteristics. Starting in verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind. So those are positive descriptions, what they are. But then Paul goes and describes what love isn't, that are negative descriptions. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. And it is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Okay. Love puts away pride. You can make a case that all of the negative description of love, things that it aren't, that all of those things really just kind of are, are underneath the uh, umbrella of pride. That, that what love isn't, that those, those things really kind of go back to a person being proud. So, in light of that, what do we then take from it? Well, we see that our love enables us to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Say, love what God loves and hate what God hates. So we don't have time, but in the book of Proverbs, you have that list in Proverbs 6. You know, six things are an abomination. Seven, or I'm sorry, six things the Lord hates, seven are abomination, and the first one is a, a proud look. Pride. God hates pride. And love, when expressed biblically, puts away pride. Now, how do we see this expressed, or how do we see this really playing out? Well, I think there's a, an interesting passage in the book of Hebrews that helps us to see, especially as we look at the issues of the day, and especially perhaps as we look at the trajectory of society, and where we perhaps are as Christians, and frankly, where many of our brothers and, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe have been for quite some time, I think it's helpful to look at this. So Hebrews chapter 10, let's look there. Hebrews chapter 10. The author here is writing to these group of believers. And in verse 32 of Hebrews 10, he says, Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised." Frankly, verses 32 through 34 don't sound like something I want to go through. I don't. I don't want any of us to go through that. None of us looks at that as far as a pleasant experience. And yet, look how the author of Hebrews describes their response. And, and it seems that 
he's describing their response shortly after they became believers and were experiencing the cost of being a believer. He says, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, verse 32, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So there was, it was happening to believers, and then there were believers that it wasn't happening to, but those believers were willingly aligning themselves with the believers that it was happening to. So difficulties and those who weren't ashamed of those who were going through the difficulties. And verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Now, as you look in the New Testament, especially as you look through the book of Acts, it's interesting to see how, you know, Christians can respond at different points in time. For example, Paul on several occasions appeals to his Roman citizenship when it served to protect him and advance the gospel. I mean, Paul wasn't this, like, spiritual doormat. Okay, you're going to flog me? Well, okay. I mean, several occasions. Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You're going to flog me? And it stopped. And it allowed for actually him to be protected, others with him to be protected, and the gospel to go forward. But then there's other circumstances like this. Where their property was taken from them. Their freedom was taken from them. And how did they respond? Joy. I know how I think I might respond to that. I don't know that it would be joy unless there's a recalibration of what it is that I really am and we really are and where our citizenship really lies, Philippians chapter 3, and where the possessions are eternal versus temporal. But what makes us then hold on so tightly to the now? And what allowed for these believers to not hold so tightly to it when the time came? It was love. It was love for God, and it was love for one another. Pride is kind of like holding on to a tug-of-war rope and refusing to let go. I want my way. I want to be right. I want to win. I want to be represented. I want. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we're speaking to the issues of the day, there are times where our pride actually can get in the way of our love. And love puts away They had a better and lasting possession. These Christians did not take pride in their comfort. And so we see these Hebrew Christians coming to Christ. We see them living out their faith in a way that cost them greatly and yet rewarded them greatly. And rewarded them maybe not in the here and now, but in the long run. Now, going back to the very beginning. As we look at the litmus test, if I can put it that way, of who we are in Christ. And especially as we think of who we are in Christ as it relates to the issues of the day 
and our voicing of our opinions of them, or perhaps our representation of them. Love must be the defining characteristic. A biblical love. A love that is willing to speak difficult things when the time comes. I mean, Stephen expressed love when he called out the Pharisees. Paul expressed love, and Peter expressed love, and John expressed love when they rebuked false teaching. But it was a love of warning. It wasn't a love of pride. I'm sorry, it wasn't, wasn't, a, 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 it wasn't a self-centered thing. And so my encouragement to you, especially as we look at where we're living, what we're living in, and our ability to speak so public to it, we cannot check the fruit of the Spirit at the door when we enter into the public square, especially the discussion of the ideas. And frankly, if we are less served because of it, then so be it. But may we be known for our love. Because if we do check the fruit of the Spirit, then 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 really is true of us. Those clanging gongs, tinging cymbals, fruitless activity, standing before the Lord, and having little to show. Okay? We want to be right. We have truth. But this truth cannot be used as a weapon to simply inflate ourselves. Okay? As Christians, let me ask you, those who know you, those who get to know you better, do they find the love? Are you known for expressing your thoughts, your opinions, the perspectives of the day as you're sitting on the bleachers or as you're by the lunchroom vending machine? Are they seeing love? Do they know you for love? Do your children and grandchildren know you for love? Or is it just win? We are not here to just win. Jesus won. He's our king. And what happens, it's up to him. We have his word. May that be what we are best known for. May that be what guides our response even when we start to bristle. Even when we get that message and it's like, oh, no. Why am I on this planet? It's not to win. It's to make disciples. There's two types of people, right? There are those who are in Christ and those who are praying would be in Christ. Okay? I mean, seriously, in Christ, and we are praying that they would be in Christ. Okay? All right. You're going to have a lot of opportunity to speak a lot. Not just up to this point, but in the future. 
these, I hope, are helpful in just having us really live about our life, live our Christian lives in a skillful way, hopefully. Okay? All right, let's pray. God, you're good. Thank you so much. Um, Lord, we just scratched the surface. We could, we could talk a whole lot more. And, and God, there's so many things that can divide us. There's so many things that can divide us. There's so many things that we can erect as litmus tests for authentic Christianity. But Lord God, protect us. Protect us, first of all, from our own inclination to want to win, to want to be right, to want to prove our point, to want to drive it home. God, protect us from ourselves in that way. Help us to see souls that are destined for somewhere. And Lord, you have providentially called us to be with who we're with, to be in the community that we're in, so that we can be salt and light, so that we can reflect the testimony of Jesus Christ. Not to simply be warm and fuzzy and affirming whatever people want to believe, but at the same time, not to be belligerent, to be arrogant, not to pick fights. Lord, souls are spending somewhere forever. Help us, Lord. Give us wisdom in the moment. Give us clarity and good speech. May we be wise when we express our opinions on social media. May we be wise when we're confronted with opportunities, when people ask us our opinions. Lord, we have the freedom to express them and to share them, and that's fine. But God, may we see a soul behind that conversation. Thank you so much for the patience and long-suffering that you show and continue to show towards us. None of us have this down. And all of us, if we're probably honest, have those moments where we think back and we cringe. We think maybe we blew it. But God, you're bigger than all that. So as we look, we see something, a topic that can and could possibly be hijacked by the world, Lord, we look at love through the lens of the word, and we see love for what it is, coming from God, perfectly expressed through Christ Jesus, essential to a person being a follower of Jesus Christ. We see it as putting away pride, and we see it as superior to being right, though not undermining what being right. Help us, Lord. May we live this for your glory. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. And we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Um, really grateful for the opportunity to share God's word. Um, I am not a big Puritan guy. I, I like to read. But um, I was brought into just kind of like a, a real quick finish to this. Um, I was brought into contact with a Puritan, Hugh Binning, and he wrote a little book called Christian Love, and actually his Puritan language isn't that bad. You know, sometimes when you read like the guys in the 1600s, it's, it's really difficult to wade through. This is, is not that difficult, and it's actually quite short. I would strongly recommend it. It's called Christian Love by Hugh Binning. He lived 400 years ago, but immensely relevant to today, okay? Just one of, I'm sure, a lot of different resources out there. So be safe. 
Have a wonderful week. Please keep one another in prayer. God bless you. Have a good night. We'll see you.